Hi, I'm Alan Morrison, Professor of Global Management at the Thunderbird School of Global Management, Arizona State University, and um, I'm joining with uh, Chris Smith, who's uh, talking to us from Culture Matters. When you're developing your international business, one thing is often forgotten, cultural differences. The Culture Matters International Business Podcast does exactly that. Focus on international business and cultural differences. Chris and Peter guide you through the maze of business and cultural differences in every podcast episode. Get the global perspective here at the Culture Matters International Business Podcast. Hey, Alan. Good afternoon, if I'm not mistaken. Good morning. Good, good, good morning, even. Ah, okay, okay. Well, that's good. Um, and you, okay. Let's 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 put it like this here. Um, we talked a little bit before uh, I hit record, and so if you can do us a favor, the audience that is, tell us a bit about yourself. Where do you come from originally? That is, where are you now, and what is your so-called cultural frame of reference? And what I mean with that is um, not your two weeks that you spent in Cancun, if ever you spent two weeks in Cancun, for instance. Yeah, well, thank you. So, um, uh, Alan Morrison um, was raised in Canada, Eastern Canada, mm -hmm. in uh, Ottawa, where my father worked as a very senior official in the Canadian government and um, grew up uh, very Canadian, although I was born in the U.S., uh, family was all Canadian, moved back to Canada when I was a small baby. Uh, when when I was uh, 19 years old, I uh, went on an adventure to uh, France, spent two years as a missionary in France, in various parts, uh, Paris, Britannia, uh, Normandy, and so on. And um, when I came back home, I well, first off, when I went to France, I was a little bit shocked at the culture, uh, the people, the lifestyle, um, the food, the cars, uh, of course, the language is always an issue, but uh, that was my first real foray, foray into cross-cultural management issues. <laughs> when I came back home, what shocked me was that I had reverse culture shock that was even worse than the culture shock I had when I arrived in Paris in 1978. Uh, what that started for me was an absolute uh, fascination with all things international uh, and with better understanding culture and, um, and, and how to work in a cross-cultural basis. I ended up getting an undergraduate degree in international relations uh, and a uh, MBA and then a PhD in international business strategy. While I was doing my uh, PhD program, one of our speakers who I actually spent time with uh, in a very small group of, uh, with four other PhD students spent a half day with a man whose name was Larry Eagleburger, who had been the U.S. Secretary of State, president of Kissinger Associates. And as we were talking, he interrupted me and said to he said to he said to me, "So you're Canadian?" He could tell by my accent, and I said, "Really? I, I'm actually a dual citizen." But he said, "No, no, you're Canadian." And he started to, um, I think, mock my accent a little bit. It was all very playful and, you know, harmless. But that really made an impression on me that I uh, had a strong Canadian accent because you know you don't realize you have an accent when you're speaking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that again reinforced, you know, this. Uh, 
uh, for me, this uh, idea of wanting to be more global, less, less of anything, less Canadian, less American, less uh, French, et cetera, et cetera. That's not easy to do, by the way. No. But it, it also helped me better understand uh, how other cultures view you when you're a stranger in, in, in their lands. Uh, I've since gone on to uh, uh, be a professor at INSEAD, uh, doing work in France, but also based in uh, Singapore, mm -hmm. and a professor for many years at IMD in Lausanne, Switzerland, where uh, I was a chaired professor of um, responsible leadership and where I ran the CEO center. Um, I also spent time as a visiting professor uh, twice in uh, China, uh, spent a lot of time uh, over a year running executive programs and retreats for uh, various companies in the greater China. And, um, and that also helped me better understand some of the cultural issues of doing business and the misperceptions that mm -hmm. we have. I've uh, worked or done lectures in over 70 countries around the world, uh, lectured on cross-cultural management issues, lectured on global leadership issues, um, written 13 different books. Uh, some are award-winning books, some best-selling books, and um, many articles and publications like the Harvard Business Review and the Strategic Management Journal and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit of my background. Um, I, I think um, I, I would like to call myself a global uh, a globalist. And in an era where we're increasingly shifting to nationalism, maybe I'm a bit outdated. I, I don't think I am. But either this but or that, uh, or you're either outdated or, or you're ahead of the crowd. Or you're soon to be outdated. <laughs> uh, but in any case, um, I, I really appreciate being able to participate with you in this uh, in this program in Culture Matters. Well, you're more than welcome. Um, it's been uh, it's been it's, it, you're you have a really um, impressive curriculum uh, with all the uh, with all the experience you have, and, and to that extent, I would call you a an enlightened American or, or a super enlightened Canadian. Um, so that that's you know because it, it's this is this is something that. Um, I, I do ask this when I do my workshops, and I do ask the the audience, "What are the most um, uh, the most culturally insensitive people, uh, or or people as in culture, right, or or country? Either way, uh, and usually people come up with the United States, and which is not the case. It's the, the Americans in general are not culturally insensitive; they generally tend to be more culturally ignorant, and to that extent, ignorance is bliss. It, what you don't, I cannot blame you for what you don't know." Right. It's the and the point or the reason for that, at least this is how I see it, is relatively logical, because if you look at the numbers of 50 percent of the Americans and we're not talking about Canadians, but the Americans, they don't have a passport. But why would you? Because everything is, is there. I mean, from desert to snow, it, whenever you want it. Um, and in right, addition right, to that, right, right. and this happened to me a couple of years ago, I was in Indianapolis and Indianapolis no, is known for two things from the Indy 500 and for the, the convention centers that they have. I was there for a, um, a lecture I, I gave for the uh, your FBI or the American FBI. And um, I, I stayed in one of those Marriott five-star whatever hotels. Right, right, right. Exactly which one. And yeah. there was no international channel. There was no CNN International, no, no BBC World News, no, no Deutsche no. Welle, no France 24, something. No, not. 
and this is a, no. a relatively major city, no? So you really have to go out there to search for getting international news. So um, answer to my I'm not question. surprised. Pardon? Well, I'm my, not surprised. You won't find that anywhere in, in maybe in the, maybe in Chicago, New York, uh, San yeah. Francisco, but by and large, you will not find it at all. Yeah. So and hence and so the answer to my question, to my own question is uh, what what cultures, cu cultures, countries are the most insensitive uh, that at least in my experience, to my experience, uh, the Danes and the Dutch, we don't give a damn about you know what no you don't speak the language okay well then you how you have to fit in or you do something else, yeah. Um, but, but yeah and I don't know anyway um, I have a, 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 I prepared a few questions and one of the questions that that Absolutely. I get the answer <laughs> potential answer to. Um, your email is a Thunderbird email address. Um, right. For me, the Thunderbirds is something from my youth. You know, the the, the puppets, etc. What is what is uh, absolutely? Yeah. So, uh, and you can see the background uh, here. So, yes. so Thunderbird. Actually, I left IMD to join Thunderbird as the CEO and Director General of the school. The school has a storied history going back to uh, World, World War II. So back in those days, um, the Thunderbird Field was an Air Force training base, which was set up in the desert about uh, 50 kilometers outside of Phoenix. In fact, the U.S. Uh, Air Force set up four of these training bases in the Phoenix area. Uh, because the weather is so good, very clear skies, low humidity, uh, generally low winds, great place to train. The Thunderbird field was designated certainly for American pilots, but for international pilots from International Air Force to come to the U.S. to train. So there were at uh, any various uh, times literally dozens of nationalities mm -hmm. training their pilots at the Thunderbird field. Uh, and and they it was really a cross cultural experience that brought people together. Uh, in 1946, the base was decommissioned, and the uh, commander of the base wanted to uh, was certainly impressed by this kind of cross cultural experience, believing that when you're working together, you're less likely to go to war. And so that base became the Thunderbird Institute for Foreign Trade. Uh huh. And uh, and that began the Thunderbird School back in 1946. And right. since then, it has grown as as kind of the one of the more storied um, uh, schools for international management and leadership uh, uh, training and right. development. My students right now, um, they're from every imaginable part of the world. We we have uh, the the Americans are in a small minority in in the classroom. Mm -hmm. We have people from uh, Latin America, Africa, Asia, Pacific, you name it, Middle East. Everyone is uh, is international. They're committed to being international. Uh, multiple languages. Language is a big part of the program. Mm -hmm. Cross-cultural management, global mindset. So this is really what the school is all about. So when you talk about you know the U.S. being uh, maybe in some ways insensitive, uh, Thunderbird is the antithesis of that. We're incredibly broad in, in our perspective and in our application. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for that elaboration. It's, and I haven't said that Americans are insensitive. Typically not. They just, oh, I know. That, some that, that, some that, are. It's a, it's a good difference. It's an important right. difference, though. 
Right. Well, that's that's. Well, what they I can think. be insensitive too. <laughs> no, well, of, yes, of course, there are ample ample uh, uh, examples of that. Absolutely. Um, did, Absolutely. Did you sort of, sort of late the, the, your own segue in a way because you, you your your profession in general is global management. Um, where does global management right. start and where does it stop? I mean, I'm thinking about does it include economics? Does it include accounting? The, where? In give me paint us a little bit of a, what what do you teach or what is the the essence of of your your profession or slash knowledge if you want right so global global management or more uh, more narrowly global leadership is focused on working uh, and leading people in a cross cultural environment so if i'm a global leader i need to be able to work with motivate uh, guide employees in a multicultural uh, world. Um, global leadership is more than I'm a, a expat working in Japan, you know, leading Japanese. Mm -hmm. It's the ability to lead people across multiple countries. To be a global leader, you need to have a global mindset. Having global mindset, however, doesn't make you a global leader. So global leadership requires global mindset but it also requires a whole basket of leadership competencies that are associated with, with running uh, global organizations or directing global or organizations. I've actually written three different books on this topic of global leadership mm -hmm. and, um, and the specific competencies that are required to be effective global leaders. Let me just step back. Global management mm -hmm. is managing the operations which requires functional skills. So if I was a global accounting manager, I need awareness and acumen in the levers of accounting. If I'm a global finance manager, of course, I'll need those specific functional siloed, if you will, competencies. Global leadership really transcends that and focuses on the personal side and the broad organizational side. Okay. Is this would you, because you you mentioned the word already, um, and I wrote down because one question leads to the other, is this, um, do people need certain skills? Do you have to have them, uh, say, a priori? Or do you have to have a certain mindset? Um, or, uh, and can right. you, when a student walks in your classroom after a couple of hours, say, nah, he's not going to cut it? Or, yeah, that's a good one. That's a smart cookie. How do you assess that? Yeah. So, so first off, at the core, and it's not a, it's not really a competency. It it is a mindset. Mm -hmm. at, at the core is drive. So global leaders need a certain drive. Yeah. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of energy, a lot of uh, sleepless nights, if you will, to uh, to doggedly pursue and master global leadership. So a lot of phone calls in the middle of the night, a lot of time on airplanes, mm. uh, a lot of getting out of your comfort zone. Mm. Uh, and so at, just as, as an example, you know, we, 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 I, sp I spent a lot of time meeting literally hundreds of, of very impressive global leaders. Uh, let me contrast one versus another. Uh, one, I won't mention the company's name, but a huge semiconductor company, we all know the company, senior vice president, very American guy. I met him in Japan at the New Otani Hotel in Tokyo. 
And um, he'd been to Japan many times. And I asked him to describe his typical visit to Japan. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, you know, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm paraphrasing here. I'm a big shot in my company. So I land in Tokyo, have a car and driver pick me up. They take me to the hotel. I stay at the same hotel, you know, every time I'm there uh, because it, it kind of reminds him of being back home. They have, in this case, they have, uh, you know, they have CNN, they have HBO, they have great internet access. He gets, uh, he eats Western food when he's there. He gets picked up in the morning, taken to the office, stays in the office, have meetings in the office all day long, speaking nothing but English. He's exhausted at the end of the day. He's got a gazillion emails to do. So he stays in his room, orders room service. He's there for five days. He flies back home. Wow. And so I said, you've been to Japan, you know, uh, 20 times, but you've actually been there once, repeated that same experience 20 times. Contrast that with someone when they go to Japan, Art Lafley from, from P- P&G is a good example. Mm-hmm. When, when he would go to Japan, instead of having that same experience, he wants to be out in the field. And so he'll have his staff set up meetings, going into people's homes to look in their medicine cabinets, look in their kitchen cabinets to see what are they buying? Why are they buying it? Wants to meet with the people to understand at the ground floor level, how do people think? How do they interact? How do they consume? What channels and so on? That there's a, a significant difference in drive between those two people. It's not that both don't work hard. They both work super hard. Yeah. The one is driven to know more. Tied to that is curiosity. Great global leaders are curious about the world and how it works. When they go overseas, they want to read the local newspapers. They want to interface with the local culture so they can feel it. They can absorb it. Mm-hmm. So a, a driver here, a, a central driver of global leadership is this curiosity, insatiable appetite to know more, to figure out how things work. Global leaders also need savvy. Savvy uh, it comes from the French savoir-faire. They know how to do things. There's mm-hmm. a business savvy they need to have. They need to understand how business works. They need to understand how to make money for their companies. Because it doesn't matter how nice and charismatic you are, what kind of global mindset you have. At the end of the day, nobody really cares unless you can produce business results. And so global leaders have this savvy. They know how businesses work and how to make money. It's often involving looking at markets in a unique way, recognizing opportunities for their products in the markets, arbitrage opportunities, cost advantages. They also have organizational savvy. They understand how organizations work, how decisions work, the power structure globally. They understand the global tools, if you will, to get resources to make things happen for them on a global basis. So that global savvy is important. They also need character. It requires a certain character to manage globally. This is involving ability to connect interpersonally with people. A lot of managers that I know of, when they go overseas, they they don't want to actually connect with the people. They don't necessarily, and this is maybe an overstatement, they don't really like people that much. They don't really care. Yeah. You know, and I've yeah. seen many CEOs, you prop them up, they give their speech, they get in the plane, they fly back home. They just don't connect. Hmm. Uh, language is a big barrier for them. They don't have the ability to emote. They're lacking the emotional intelligence. But there's also a character aspect of this. 
an ethical component to it uh, because people are watching these leaders like a hawk, looking for inconsistencies, looking for uh, behavioral abnormalities, looking for breaches, if you will, of ethics and breaches of the company code of contact. Mm -hmm. We see this all the time. Nothing will erode a leader's um, a leader's influence faster than lapses of of ethic of, of ethics. Character is a big component of this. A final component is perspective, the ability to make these trade-offs between what has to be global, what has to be local. These are very different, difficult trade-offs. Global leaders need to have the judgment to be able to apply and uh, those trade-offs and understand where to apply them and balance the tensions which are inherent. Now, you asked a good question, and I, I don't want to prolong the answer, but you know, you said, can you spot a global leader? Um, the answer to that is, is a, a bit more nuanced. Global leaders are born and made, mm -hmm. which means that there is a certain DNA component to it. Uh, there's no doubt leaders uh, are imbued with certain in inherent, if you will, competencies. But mm -hmm. probably a bigger factor than that it is their drive, their ambition, the training that they receive, the mentoring that they receive, the coaching that they receive, the education, the schooling, the on-the-job assignments and what they make of it. So you can't divorce genetics from it, but I think genetics are relatively a relatively minor component mm -hmm. compared to what the leader can do, uh, him or herself, to accentuate the competencies and to make the most of the cross-cultural exposure. Okay. All right. Well, it makes, makes sense in a way. There to, if you miss one component, then you might not make it completely. There's no training that can, that can or education that can. That well, can we all miss some. We, we all fall yeah, yeah, short sure. in some areas. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um, I'm going to see if I can find my own bridge here. Uh, we, we talked about this before I, I hit record. And I asked you if your speciality was uh, was China specifically. And you said, well, not in a way, but not really, not only at least. Um, so I was thinking, not only. Uh, given this, the state of affairs and, and the, the time that we're recording this is December 8, 2022, for you, if you're listening to this in the future. Uh, so you have to trace it back to what happened, what's, what is current and actual at this moment, is um, the the current situation in China, with all the prote protests going on um, against, well, the corona measures, uh, even against the the supreme leader uh, Xi Jinping, Ping, um, how do you how do you square that in in a way? To what extent does that hurt the economy of China? To what extent does that influence the relationship that China has with the West and vice versa uh, with the United States, part of being the West? Um, uh, Russia in the mix. It's a complete. This is. I was going to say a mess, but it's actually re really an interesting mix. What is going on? Because everybody wants something from everybody, but nobody seems to to, as we say, show the back of their tongue. So, how? What is yeah, your your yeah. take on this one? Yeah, yeah. My first off, my take is that um, you know when when China began to open up uh, Deng Xiaoping. We in the West, um, well, obviously, we were delighted, and um, we believed that 
if we help China grow and prosper, they will become, uh, they will embrace increasingly Western capitalism, the prosperity that is introduced into China, and there's been enormous prosperity, 800 million Chinese brought out of poverty, et cetera, that that, because it has happened in many other parts of the world, that that prosperity would lead to more uh, political freedom, uh, a, a kind of shifting of the pendulum from totalitarianism to democracy. That was our belief. Yeah. Um, as China grew and uh, increasingly be, uh, became more prosperous, the power shifted in China from the central, from the center, from the CCP to increasingly what, what the model it was a was a vertical model became much more horizontal. The public became wealthier, but also the power shifted increasingly to the provinces, governors and municipalities. Mm -hmm. And so as the power ceded from the Beijing CCP, um, uh, Xi Jinping was elected. Now he's in his third term, so more than 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And he faced, I think, a challenge. You know, do, do we let it go or do we reassert ourselves? And he has decided to reassert the role of Beijing, the CCP in these affairs. And so little by little, he's clawed back power and more and more and more. Uh, his election now for a third term, I think, sig signals that the, this is going to continue. Um, this has brought great consternation in the West. Many people believe that the path we were on, which was more liberalization in China, that path is not paying, is not uh, fruitful. Uh, we're finding the environment increasingly difficult in China. Then you layer into that uh, the, the COVID uh, situation. Mm -hmm. you, lay, you, you, you layer into that increasing nationalism for various political and self-interest reasons. And so we're, we're at odds with, with China, increasingly at odds. Um, some have argued, asserted, or even predicted that we are on the path to decoupling from China. That uh, the end game for China and the end game for the West is a decoupled mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. where we have this kind of bipolar with spheres for China and then, uh, and then you know, the West. Um, I don't believe that that's going to happen. I don't believe that China wants that. In fact, I know China does not want that to happen. It's not in our interest in the West for this to happen. In fact, I, I believe that if a hard decoupling were to happen, it would lead to a global depression, not, not a recession. I don't mm -hmm. think it's anyone's interest. And so I think that we will continue to kind of dance around this, uh, jockeying for little advantages here and there. But I do not believe in this kind of existential uh, end of the world uh, scenario where we have a decoupled, completely hmm. bipolar world. Okay. And so how does, and in, in the bigger picture, again, Corona or COVID, whatever you want to call it, uh, and uh, what's going on in Ukraine or Russia, uh, relationship that Russia right. cuddles up to China or the other way around. Uh, how can well it, either way? I mean, um, is this right. it, is this good? Is this bad? And 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 linked to that, and it's it's something that come right. came to mind. The whole thing that the Western world, say Europe, Australia, the the, the Anglo-Saxon part uh, of the world, the fact that we want to install 
if you want, if I phrase this correctly, democracy in every every angle and corner of the world. Is that a Western disease? I mean, at me being an interculturalist, it's go to Afghanistan. They're not interested in what we do. It's not that it's not that they don't want liberty and freedom of speech, yeah. etc. Right. But not our way. It's not. Anyway, maybe I'm, I'm mixing up two things in 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 one in one point. What what's your take on that? You know, um, well, first off, on, on the Russia issue, and I, I, I had an hour-long call with a very senior Russian executive four or five days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're very concerned in Russia about where, uh, where the world for them is headed. Uh, they, they believe, uh, they don't know, but they believe that it pending, or unless there's something that happens in, dramatically in the short term, they think it's going to drag on for six months, twelve months, and it's it, it's uh, cratering the economy. I, I think Russia is becoming less and less relevant uh, on the global stage. I think this has been a major uh, a major uh, blunder of Putin's because their their stature has fallen, their their military has been cratered, their economy has been I won't say decimated, but has been badly hurt. And I don't think Russia comes out of this in any shape uh, at all. Uh, and I think the Chinese, uh, very smart people, are um, they want to they want Russian oil, and that's all they want. I don't think you're going to see a tightening of the partnership. Uh, they so it's they just opportunistic view... behavior from the Chinese, really. Yeah, the Chinese are completely opportunistic. Uh-huh. Uh, they don't want to get too close with Russia. They don't want their image tar- tarnished by Russia. They have far more to lose by cozying up to Russia. Mm. Uh, they can buy the Russian oil with impunity. That's all they want. You know, they want to take advantage of a weakened uh, Russia. Mm. Um, so, you know, we you, now you asked this question about Western values. So I had a very interesting insight about this. In 1989, um, uh, Tiananmen Square. I was in Beijing, Tiananmen Square. I was actually there when they declared martial law and have a, you know, uh, a story in getting out of China. It was a, it was a, it was a disaster. I mean, I did get out, but my goodness. Um, but I had an interesting meeting with um, the deputy dean at the Tsinghua University Business School. Tsinghua is... Um, arguably the top business school or top university in the country. Hmm. The dean of the business, the titular dean of the business school was the premier of Russia. Uh, it's it's kind of got that reputation. So I met with the deputy dean, had dinner at his house, actually. And I was talking to him about Tiananmen Square. This was before martial law was declared. Mm-hmm. And um, and I said to him, you know, you got to be concerned about this, all these demonstrations, da 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 and he was he was in denial. He was a very informed guy. He was in denial. Oh, it's not that bad. It's not, no, 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 no. And I thought, well, maybe you're just being politically savvy here um, and self-interested. And then he said, he said, no, no matter what happens, we could debate, you know, the extent of this or not. But he said, no matter what happens, we in China value stability mm-hmm. more than we value democracy. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, well aren't the two related? And he said, you know, the problem with democracy is I am one person 
in a country of 1.2 billion people. My vote makes no difference about uh, on any matter at all. What I care about is my family, stability, uh, income, opportunity, all that stuff. He says the political theme, you know, it's not relevant in terms of democracy for the Chinese. And I, to me, that was a big insight that, you know, our Western kind of emphasis on democracy, first off, it took hundreds of years to be uh, integrated into our value system. We have the institutions to support democracy. In these other countries, they don't have the institutions. They've all become politicized, rubber stamps. Hmm. And so their aspirations are, are, they've moved away from political aspirations, by and large, lifestyle aspirations, stability aspirations, uh, public safety aspirations. Uh, and so they, they just, it's not that they view things in one at the very macro level differently. It's just they've decided what to focus on is what they can influence, what they can control. And they've largely walked away from the political side. Should we take um, a, lesson, you know, a lesson out of this one then? Should we stop this pushing behavior? Well, I call it pushing behavior. You must and you must and our values, and if you right. don't, and et cetera. I mean, there's a saying that goes about the Dutch, that is, that the Dutch think that they only, yeah. they're the only sane people in, in, in an insane world. Uh, I've, I've come to believe sometimes that the Western world actually acts like this. You, our values are the values, which yeah. I think is a bit short-sighted. Well, uh, it's, it's short-sighted, and at the end of the day, when you scratch the surface, it's, it's, a, it's an attitude that's basically filled with hypocrisy and arrogance yeah. i mean I, I, I and i've got the, the the my new book enterprise china where i look at western businesses and how they interface and do business and compete in and with china mm -hmm. and this kind of monolithic enterprise china organization but one of the things you see very quickly is how many chinese how many western companies american Dutch, British, German, Australian, they, they kowtow to the Chinese and, and acquiesce to Chinese values mm -hmm. in, in a way they would never support back home. So as an, just as an example, you know, Apple Computer, a, a, Apple has stringent policies around privacy and data integrity. So they set up an operation in China. They're, they bring in a partner. The partner has a strong ownership, not complete ownership uh, from the state. Uh, they then turn over the management of the, the data center, basically these data farms that they have. Mm -hmm. um, they turn over the encryption key to the Chinese partner. The Chinese partner through the state, the state now has access to everything on those servers, yeah. everything in the cloud that's stored in China. Mm -hmm. Now, would would Apple ever do that in the United States? No, never. The public would line up and uh, you know attack them. But we yeah. see this with with uh, hotels, with airlines, with the the NBA uh, basketball. We see this you know with Daimler and uh, automobiles. We see it all over the place. Western companies are apologizing, and the issue is how sincere can we make the apology sound? You know because. We called the, you know, Taiwan a, a, a nation or whatever. And so, you know, we, we compromise these sacrosanct values for business.
We do it for uh, reasons of business expediency. I, I think this is one of the biggest challenges Western companies are going to have to face as they think about their values. So what values are, in fact, global, never to be compromised? And this is one of the things that I think China is going to push, um, may, maybe in an unwanted way, push onto the, onto the agenda of boards of directors and the, and the senior leadership teams. Mm -hmm. Because the amount of hypocrisy is nauseating out there. Yeah. All right, Ellen, it, it's, I'm looking at the clock here. Um, I think we've been talking sure. for at least more than 30 minutes. Um, and, sure, it's been um, interesting. Yeah, well, it's, 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 a, it's a topic, and one topic leads to the other. Uh, you could can, you can talk for hours and days about this uh, and, and exchange sure. ideas. And, 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 all right. So but I've got two more questions to ask, if, um, if I may. Um, the one but last sure. question is, if, can you give us three tips to become cult more culturally competent, either from your, your professional life or your, um, your personal experience? Sure. So thank you, it's a great question because certainly for the audience, I think there's a natural built-in sensitivity to this and ambition to be more culturally mm -hmm. competent at least. Yeah, I would say uh, the first comes from um, our, our research on global leadership. When we surveyed and interviewed over 160 global leaders from all of the major continents of the world, big, medium, small companies, we asked them what was the most significant thing they did or the thing that had the biggest impact on their ability to manage cross-culturally. 85%, 85% said the single most important thing that they ever did, not just in terms of cross-culture, but just in terms of impacting them as individuals was working and living overseas. You want to develop cross-cultural skills. The number one thing you can and should do is seek out an opportunity to work and live in a foreign country and a foreign culture. And the two may be dissimilar. An Australian working in a foreign country of New Zealand is not really in a cross-cultural experience. Yes. Number one, put yourself in that context of different language, culture, and so on. Number okay. two, mm -hmm. travel with purpose. Don't just, I mean, I guess there's vacations, but even on vacations, seek out opportunity to engage with, to better understand the local environment. And the third would be read. Read, 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 read. Um, you know, it, it, it would be easy to add a fourth, which is talk to people in your home country who come from different cultures, but that's not always possible. And so I, uh, number three on my list would be read, 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 uh, take advantage of whatever you have at your disposal on the internet or whatnot, to understand the cultures at, at the kind of more fine grained level. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right, read, um, and not only Lonely Planet, Wikipedia is a good source, YouTube is a good source. Right. There's a lot of stuff out there for sure. I'll put in number four as well as a bonus. Why not? Talk to other cultures or talk to people from other cultures. Alan, if, um, if people would like to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Yeah, so uh, my, uh, my uh, email is, uh, you've got my name, alan.morrison at thunderbird.asu.edu. Uh -huh. um, I have a, a website uh, for the book called enterprisechina.com. That's easy Enterprise to remember. Enterprisechina.com. 
Right. That's the title of the book, EnterpriseChina.com. That website goes live today, tomorrow. Uh, but by the time they watch this video, it will be live. Okay, good. And uh, I look forward to connecting with this great group of people. All right. Excellent. All right. I am. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time and your effort in your your morning um, in that uh, that great big country, the United States. And um, I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future. Thank you. Good to chat. Thank you. Overlooking cultural differences when you're developing your business internationally can be the biggest mistake you can make. Let Chris and Peter help you avoid those mistakes. Get in touch now. Go to culturematters.com.